Support for this podcast comes from CLR Clear. Fight back against annoying household messes with CLR Clear. CLR Clear is tough on dirt and grime all around your home, and we're not just talking about calcium, lime, and rust. They have an entire lineup of cleaning products for your kitchen, bathroom, garage, and more. Visit clrbrands.com to learn more. CLR Clear, fight the clean fight. Eileen Fisher designs simple clothes to make your life easier. Timeless pieces in high-quality materials that are responsibly sourced for less impact on the environment and more positive impact in the world. Visit EileenFisher.com and use offer code GIRLFRIEND to receive $25 off your $100 purchase. That's EileenFisher.com, offer code GIRLFRIEND for $25 off. Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend. A podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Ann Friedman. And I'm Amina Tussauds. Every other week, we'll be bringing you a special phone-a-friend episode between either Ann or me and one of our rad pals. And this week, I talked to really awesome lady, Cameron Russell. Why do I know that name? One, because she's like a beautiful supermodel. And two, because she's like the woke model in our lives. She was also recently at the Paris Climate Talks and covered that for Vogue. So the way actually that I know Cameron is because I'm obsessed with her mom, who is one of the founders of Zipcar. And so like <laughs> talked about what it's like to have like a powerful mom for a model also who is a tech lady. So, you know, just like awesome. checked all of my boxes. Models, models. Ah, <laughs> models, models. Cameron, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I was super excited to talk to you for many, 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 many reasons. So I was really excited that you said yes. I was like, man, oh, she's yeah. like super busy all the time and like jet setting. When will she yeah. have the time? I feel the same way. Like when you tweeted the story I did for Vogue, that was like the high point of, of the feedback from that story because... I love stuff that you've made. So that was really incredible. <laughs> oh, man. You know, let's talk about that Vogue story. So I 100% freaked out when I saw that you were in Paris at the climate talks and that you were profiling each of the women that was involved with them because so many of them are African women Yeah, that are women that I have admired for a long time. And honestly, like to see them in Vogue, for some people, this is not going to hit home. But like for me, that that hit really hard emotionally. I never thought these worlds would collide. And you were the person that made that media happen. Oh, it's so awesome to hear. Yeah. I mean, when I was looking at the homepage, I was a model UN kid in high school and a total nerd. And so I, I feel like normally the homepage of Vogue does not totally connect with me. And when I went there and I saw all these amazing world leaders that are just badass women, I was like, man, this is a great day. It's so awesome to see these women that are you know, over the age of 50 and from all over the world. It's so unusual. That's really cool. So have you always been super involved in, I guess, like climate activism? I would say on and off. I did like climate video for 350.org. Like I'm so bad at years, but probably seven Uh, years ago. I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, so you're like plugged in. (laughs) I, I did that, but you know, then I kind of felt this moment I mean, I don't know if you saw that video, but the the basic gist was like lots of models stripping off their clothes 
just sort of try to explain what 350 parts per million was, but in fact was probably a total distraction from the voiceover. And it was one of the first pieces of media that I'd made. So I, I was sort of inexperienced in lots of ways. And when I look back at it, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, oh, that's so cool. I was like, you know, 19 and I, you know, made this thing with a million hits. But I also have like all these regrets about it. And I think when it came out, I actually took a step back because I felt like I wasn't ready and I didn't know how to bridge the world of fashion and my activist self, which I kept very separate as a comparison to the most recent project. That video was, you know, all like 17 to 21 year old white women in their underwear. (laughs) Making Um, change. (laughs) Yeah, making some change, thinking about who it's reaching and, you know, what message it's sending. You know, it's so interesting (laughs) for me to hear you say that your, like, activist and your model self are so separated because, like, in my friend group, we refer to you as the woke model. Um, (laughs) And you really push home that it's about more than looks and you use your platform and your influence to do such big things. It's kind of like mind-blowing to think that it was a time that you weren't doing that. Man, I got to give you a two-part answer because the first part of being the only model that is woke uh, is so complicated to hear because I know lots of models that are doing really incredible work that just don't have the platform that I have. Yeah. You know, I think that models are like these really spectacular, have the potential to be really spectacular activists. And when I meet young girls who are just starting that say they want to do that path, I'm like, okay, this is great. This is like, you know, a really fantastic way to have access to media and wealth and, you know, all these things that women usually are excluded from. So keep going, keep thinking this. And of course, that access is even more privileged and unlikely for women from the global south, you know, like NICOR, Alec, who are talking about you know, humanitarian issues from yeah. their background um, is pretty incredible. And I always point to this story of Warris, who I think in the early 90s started talking about female genital mutilation in an interview, I think with Mary Claire, but then ended up like this UN ambassador. And it was totally transformative. So I think it's a path a lot of women are taking. The other half that answer for me is I've always been really political, but it just hasn't felt obvious how to bridge fashion and that sort of activist side. Yeah, that makes sense. It sometimes is a very uncomfortable bridge just purely because fashion is so complicated. <laughs> I was on Instagram the other day and I, my 13-year-old cousin like wrote some comment and she was like, it's really rude when people say some woman is more beautiful than another woman. And I thought, yeah, like that's so basic. Uh, it's like your 13-year-old cousin like gets it. Yeah, like that's so basic. And so the really like the basis of fashion is so complicated a place because it is all about hierarchy. And that is not a great, you know, yeah. starting activism. I mean, I remember watching your TED Talk a couple of years ago where you said something like, hold on, I'm like, I actually wrote it down. The real, <laughs> the real way I became a model is I won a genetic lottery. And... I am the recipient of a legacy. And maybe you're wondering, what is a legacy? Well, for the past few centuries, we have defined beauty not just as um, health and youth and symmetry that we're biologically programmed to admire, but also as tall, slender figures and femininity and white skin. And this is a legacy that was built for me, and it's a legacy that I've been cashing out on. I remember watching that TED Talk and just being like, whoa, like, you know, it's like the stuff that everybody like thinks, but nobody had articulated, you know, before on that big of a stage and a level. And I thought it was amazing. But at the same time, you know, it was just like, 
as somebody who is such a consumer of fashion products, it like also confronted me with the role that I play with them. But I thought it was really awesome that you like took a stand and that TikTok went like viral. You know, it was everywhere that year. Yeah, that was incredible. I mean, fashion has also, you know, positive purposes. And I think there are lots of people doing really interesting and spectacular things with fashion and beauty. But the reason that I'm in fashion is is definitely a very complicated reason. And I guess, you know, the other piece that is complicated, even hearing that quote now, is the idea that because something is biological, we shouldn't question it. Yeah. Because, of course, we also have, like, biological urges to murder and rape and do horrific things. So that biological urge is so superficial. And I, when I think about, like, what beauty I find most spectacular and what beauty I'm most in love with I think of like, you know, my mom and her stretch marks because she had me. It has nothing to do with those ridiculous, quote unquote, biological. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, stop being such a thoughtful human and (laughs) like thinking through all the. It's funny having all this like super serious like media presence for you, I guess, in the sense that like it's so permanent because it just means that every once in a while you have to revisit these like very public things that you've said. So that's like kind of crazy. Can you tell me about what Space Made is and how that's working out in Brooklyn? Yeah, sure. So I got really, I think. You know, in this conversation about media and what it means to be an activist in mass media and and in fashion, I think the first half of my career, I felt like I couldn't bridge these two worlds. And so I, at the end of um, my undergrad, I wrote a thesis about political power and grassroots public art, because I think I was looking for places where other people were powerful because the halls of traditional power seemed so elitist and exclusive And I thought, you know, like, we know that change isn't coming necessarily from electoral politics and from wealthy people and all these other sort of traditional power players. So where is it coming from? And I started to look at how artists were these really spectacular organizers all over New York. On the heels of that, after graduating, I just started something in between a creative activism agency and an art collective. And we have done a bunch of sort of artist activist projects in different ways, small and big to varied success, I would say. <laughs> That's really cool. Tell me, like, what do you do, like, when you are off duty? When you're not the, like, climate justice activist, like, fashion <laughs> model? Like, what does Cameron Russell do for fun? Off duty. Man, I'm such a nerd. I just read most of the time. I mean, I, ha- I have friends, so I guess I hang out with my friends. That's number one. And then when I'm by myself on planes or in hotel rooms, I read. Now that I have a Kindle, it's really making me come to terms with like my own nerdiness because I can look over all the books that I read and they're just and you're like tracking all of the like pages (laughs) you've read a year and stuff what um or you just like look at them and you think like oh man like the documentary about my life would be so boring (laughs) it would just be it would just be you in plans like reading on a kindle yeah like me reading a kindle but not even about interesting just about like obscure social science and i'd be like oh this book's from the 90s but it's really speaking to me but it's kind of you know obsolete but i'm interested whatever we would read it give me some (laughs) examples of stuff that you're reading (laughs) uh okay let's see what i've been liking recently there's this book that i've been recommending to everyone a concise chinese english dictionary for lovers it's a great fiction piece that I think I found on a Guardian's um, new best authors list. And then I read it and I was like, whoa, this woman's voice is so powerful and incredible and unique and what an incredible story. And so I Wikipedia'd her and it turns out the author has written all these books and it was just the first translation into English. She wasn't a first time author and she had like directed a couple films and she was a six year old woman. Oh, amazing. You're just like new to us, but like she's been around forever. 
what a, it's like such an incredible book and it's a nice short fiction read. What else have I been reading? I've been loving. I mean, I've, I recently read a bunch of climate books just to prepare um, for uh, that project in Paris. It's all the basics. People could, I, I just read what everybody read, you know, Bill McKibben, Naomi Klein, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Did you leave Paris like feeling hopeful or did you, or like what were your, what were your feelings about the climate talks? That's such a hard question. I feel like I'm not giving you any easy answers. No, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do easy answers at Call Your Girlfriend all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, yeah, I talked to a lot of my girlfriends on the phone and gave them complex answers, I guess. We embrace the nuance. It's cool. <laughs> So I guess one piece was, I've never done anything like that. And it was, it felt like such a big learning experience for me personally. I can't even articulate clearly what I felt. Yeah. So, I mean, one piece is totally incredible because you look at where climate change is playing out and who has the power to change it. And most of the people with the power to change it are these executives and these presidents of very few countries and very few companies that are acting kind of rogue, like in the Wild West, doing whatever they want. So in one sense, seeing a success at the COP, which is a much more level playing field, because it requires consensus from 196 countries and resulted in consensus of 196 countries, is kind of spectacular because it means that every single one of those 196 countries has to think, okay, this deal means progress and I'm willing to go for it. So one of the things that got into the deal that hadn't been in the deal in 2009 was a cap of 1.5 degrees of warming. It's a change from the, the previous cap. Sorry, I'm getting like so specific. No, I, I learned about this watching one of your videos, remember? <laughs> oh, <great>. <laughs> it was like <laughs> 1.5 to survive. I know. <laughs> so, so it was incredible that that got in because, you know, there's all these countries, there's a hundred some countries that say this is unacceptable. This deal means nothing to us because it's a death sentence. And so that type of level playing field is spectacular. You know, then there's the, the activist side People are saying it's not enough, which of course it isn't. Everybody's, you know, individual country commitments still add up to 3.6 degrees. And the thing I've been using to explain four degrees that someone told me is the last time there was a four degree change, it was negative four degrees and it was the ice age. So I would be sitting under a hundred feet of ice, which is unreasonable to say the least. And so anyway, watching it, it felt like what a crazy compromise that these people are making. So I can see the good. I can see that everybody's present and that everybody's happy-ish with this deal. But to see countries come with hundreds of negotiators while other countries come with just one negotiator who maybe doesn't even speak the language just felt cruel. And the compromises are totally inhumane because you're compromising with people's lives. So it was very hard to watch in some ways. Yeah, you know, it was really it was really funny. Right before the climate talk started, I watched the Makers documentary on the twentieth anniversary of the Beijing Women's Conference. Yeah. Like so many of the women who were at Beijing were also in Paris. And right. so like that just made me feel immediately better. Where I was like, Thank goodness. You know, yeah. like these women have been through it, they know what's up and they they can navigate like insane, just like compromise making deals. But yeah. in the same way that you were saying that, they were some of the compromises that happened at Beijing were like really just heartbreaking. Just like women's sexuality and lesbian rights just got like really thrown under the bus because they needed this like agreement that like Muslim people and Christians and like really religious people could agree on. And right. I remember seeing that, you know, but thinking through like they still came out of that that thing with like a declaration. It's been hugely influential, but it was definitely bittersweet, right? 
And um, thinking about the parallels of the climate talks were like really interesting for me, but also heartbreaking at the same time where you're like, we want to change everything and we can't change it all at once. But like, thank goodness we're doing something about it. Yeah. And I I felt like watching those negotiators, you're holding this, those two realities in your head because you have to know what's really going on. Like, is the outcome for my country really this really horrific crisis? And on the other hand, you have to hold the reality of what can I really think that I'm going to get from these big countries who are basically greedy and whose populations like us, you know, we don't want to drive 8% less or, you know, what we don't want to make. Right. Exactly. Like we're not going to be completely underwater like some of these small countries or, you know, like see the devastations of like terror that terrorism is bringing because of climate change in some of these other places. So exactly. And then how do you go into that, you know, compromising humanity and, and then, I mean, I, it was, I'm not being articulate about it, but there was something about watching that, that felt like, how could you not break inside yourself to, to go in and make those compromises? Humans, like, that's how we make all right. sorts of big decisions. It's just, right. like, it's just gross to see how the sausage gets made. Yeah, and, and all the rest of us are totally implicated. We're just not, you know, we just are ignorant, and that's sort of our... <laughs> I know, you know, that's what, it's like watching all that coverage, that's all I could think is, like, oh, man, I'm so ignorant about this thing. And if we don't act, well, I think it's already too late. I think that, like, generations from now, like, we will be remembered as the generation that didn't care enough. Yeah. It's like, obviously, it was everybody's problem, but I think that we played like a really central and pivotal role. And I was like, this is in the same way that we rage about, boom- like we rage to boomers about the economy, like people will rage about us and climate and I can't handle it. <laughs> I mean, I, that I think that like 90% of the time, and then I have the 10% of me that is like, okay, there are some great examples of people I think Occupy Wall Street divested or, or changed to credit unions, you know, $4.5 billion in a day. And we've divested trillions of dollars. And I watched this documentary the other night about the Freedom Riders, and it was started by something like eight students or 12 students. Yeah, like a tiny group of students. They like changed the civil rights movement. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just look at that and you think like, okay, they did it. Eight people did it. So, you know, it's possible. <laughs> it is. It's possible, but God, it's so hard sometimes. It's just like, yeah, you know, it's just like keeping that focus on like things like that. To me, sometimes it just feels impossible. It feels like you're just swimming against the current of just like, just garbage, awful human ideas all the time. But I'm glad that there are people in the trenches like you who care more than I do and who are like less cynical than I am. Uh, just, just on air, you know, (laughs) (laughs) just on air. We'll like read our Kindle side by side and not really change the world. That's what will happen. Every generation has its challenges. Some would say that's the reason for its progress. It might start with a small act of kindness or a big idea that changes everything. It can come from the tiniest voice or the voice of a generation. Or it could come from me. I mean, not to. I am one of six change-making women featured in Eileen Fisher's Good Goes On campaign this spring. The campaign highlights women empowering women, the importance of sustainability, and the power of good design. Eileen started in 1984 with the idea that simple clothes can make life easier. And after spending a day on set wearing a super comfortable ultra chic jumpsuit, I think she's really on to something. 
As a company, Eileen Fisher believes doing well by doing good, and that's reflected in the way their clothes are made. Timeless styles and quality materials that are responsibly sourced for less impact on the environment and a more positive impact on the world. It was a real honor to be featured in this campaign and meet the other women making a difference in their community. I've been a longtime Eileen Fisher fan, so this was a dream come true for me. You can visit EileenFisher.com and use the offer code GIRLFRIEND to receive $25 off of your $100 purchase. That's EileenFisher.com, offer code GIRLFRIEND for $25 off. You were saying that another way that you kind of like decompresses your friends, like who is your crew? Pretty much people from school and and from yeah, high school and college and I wish that I had like a Taylor Swift girl squad I could list off right now because I please think we cool. all have a Taylor Swift girl <laughs> squads. Our girlfriends are as important to us as Taylor yes. Swift girls are important. I to have her. lots of girlfriends that don't that don't have famous names. Yeah, that's yes. crazy. So are you still friends with a lot of people from high school? I always find that so interesting because like I grew up moving all the time, so I don't have a ton of high school friends, and I went to a tiny high school. Um, there were 29 people in my graduating class. I went to a, I had 35 people in my graduating class. Man, and you're still friends with, so I like kept like one really good friend from high school. Everybody else is just like, like I, I am very fond of most of them, but I just like, I'm like, I have emotionally moved on from this time in my life because I went to boarding <laughs> school also. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, that's true. I guess I, I see that maybe like once every three years and I'm like, oh, you guys are really cool. But then I have my, you know, two close friends that I, that I keep from high school. Yeah, I know. But I have, I feel like, you know, when you see them, it's kind of like when you're with your parents and suddenly you kind of act like a 12 year old. Yes. This is a thing that is like so crazy to me is that like, no matter how old you are, you just revert to just like your teenage self. And I thought that it was only me, except that recently I went to visit a friend's family with a friend who is older, like she's in her 40s. Mm-hmm. And those three days, she was a teenager also. I was like, I have never <laughs> seen you like this before. But it gives yeah, me a I lot of hope because nobody... that's my secret shame all the time is that I just oh. turn into like a child anytime I'm with like my childhood people. And so exactly. it was good to know that it was a universal thing. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the amazing thing. You hang out a group of high school friends. I'm totally like back in the basement, ready to like play Twister. Oh my God. (laughs) That's crazy. So you're reading really smart books. You have like a fun, good, like loyal crew. Um, Do you have any like cool projects coming up? One of my new year resolutions was to be more thoughtful and strategic and not Oh, like you already are. Yes. Tell me. Like rather than just trying to do every project, do a couple projects really well. That's, I guess that's like a constant learning curve is focus, but that's, I don't know. I'm in the early stages of a couple. (laughs) That's cool. Well, when, when you are ready to talk about them, you should come back and tell us about them. Yeah. We'll follow up this phone call when I have a much better thing to say. Yes. (laughs) When you start the focus agency. Well, you know, what? I I love your, is it, did you guys come up with the shine theory or did you just talk? Yes. So shine theory. Yes. Anne and I are, we are the inventors of shine theory. I love that theory. That's, that's like a great theme for the podcast. I love that. Well, that's why you're here. You know, we're always like, like, what are other really cool ladies doing? And like, how can we like one, like really amplify their message, but also like learn from them, you know? I've been thinking about that kind of similar thing in, in my activism, because there's this word that I totally despise that I think is used in fashion a lot, which is like charity. 
and they always ask you in interviews, you know, do you have any charities or I don't know. And <laughs> right. They're <laughs> just like, what are you like, what are you a patron of? <laughs> right. Like it's, it's such a weird word or relationship. And I have been thinking about how in activism there is that type of shine theory, which is like seeing everybody. I, I mean, like the example of the women in Vogue, I felt like so incredibly honored when they would reply to my emails and, and then be willing to show up at this like crazy fashion thing I had yeah. concocted. And I think, you know, I know afterwards they were emailing me that they were so happy to be featured, but I, I mean, mostly I felt like I was the grateful one. And I think that we have to t- like maybe make that relationship more transparent, Yeah, that, you know, in productive and, you know, like progressive relationships you have, I don't know, but gratefulness on both sides. No, you know, I think that's true. I think that for me, like the the lesson that I, the biggest lesson I learned in life, like in my twenties, but in life in general is that women are just more effective when we hunt in packs. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, for me, it's like working in tech and then just like all these like super dude dominated like industries a lot of women just come from this like place of scarcity and fear. Um, it's like the Highlander model. There can only be one. And so right. the, like you have to be the only woman or you have to be the only minority or whatever. And that's the only piece of the pie that's there for you. And it's so limiting and exhausting, right? But it's like once you start looking at the whole pie and you say like, I could have all of this, you just like come from a place of abundance instead. It's just like changing. It's like a re- really radical like thinking shift. But I've just yeah. found that I am much more effective when I'm in that place than when I was that miserable, like, how do I be the only person here, you know, like the only minority <laughs> here that's like right. relevant. There are a lot of women who are like, I don't know, I'm friends with only men or women or intimidated by me or whatever. And I'm like, I don't know what like movie you saw this in. I, know, like, I would say that's a movie line too. Yeah, <laughs> it's like always such a movie line. Whenever I hear a woman say like, I'm mostly friends with men, I'm just like, I'm like, who, like, what are you even talking about? Like, we're so past that in the culture. But I, I'm like, I've never not had fun, like, working with women. I don't understand. I don't know what that line is coming from. It's very, like, kindergarten to me. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, so, you know, it's it definitely, like, predates, like, the Mean Girls movie. You know, but it's, like, a sentiment that's, like, still so prevalent. Whereas, like, for me, like, I, like, definitely did not grow up around a lot of women. Like, all of the women I knew were in my family because my high school, for some reason, was, like, a ton of dudes. But I never, like, resented the other women. I was just like, oh, there's not a lot of them around. And when I went to college and I was like, oh, my God. And I wanted to do, like, I, like, lived in a women's dorm. I, like, joined women's organizations. <laughs> I just, I was like. You went women crazy. Oh, yeah, no. I went, like, lady, I, like, racked up the lady friends. Women are amazing. Women are amazing. I think part of that, watching what was happening at COP and, and all those women in that photo series, they have a totally, you know, like, off the books type of rapport. Like, the same as, you know, like an old boys club or whatever they call it. Right. Like there's always like a really power lady back channel that's happening. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And they have very interesting, you know, like once I, it was totally amazing to see this like hyperspeed happen because I met them in like August, September. And then three months later, I'm watching all their relationships develop and how they're, you know, working with each other and working with this network. And it was so incredible to see like exactly what we're talking about, like the shine theory, like, okay, this person realizes that, you know, this person has a great message that can be used here and we're going to call this. Per- I mean, it was, it was really incredible to see that 
that lattice happening. Oh, I'm so glad that you're confirming to me that this is happening on like every level <laughs> of power. That's really awesome. Oh, one question I had for you. I wanted yeah. to ask about your mom, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. So your mom is like a tech founder. She is. She started Zipcar. She did. 12 years old. Is That's like, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. I, I mean, one of the reasons I think I, I've been such like a outsider to fashion is because the household that I grew up in was so academic and feminist and kind of socialist and, and everything that, you know, mainstream American culture isn't and, and fashion isn't. She did not shave her legs until she went to talk to the first potential investor for Zipcar. And then she did it only because she just didn't want it to be like a topic of conversation. She never dyed her hair. She never wore makeup. I love and that. So, you know, she, and, and I didn't even realize all the sort of like things that she was imbuing to me until I interacted in the adult world. And then I realized, you know, like this idea that founders have to be, you know, single 28-year-old men when in fact, my mom started a company when she had a 12-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 6-year-old, and had never started a company before. And, you know, all, the, all these kind of things that she never said about, said anything. You know, when you become an adult, you're like, oh, that's, that's why she never told right? me. Right, like you always, take your, you always take your parents for granted, and then you go into the yeah. real world, and you're like, oh my god, every, like the crazy people are the ones out here. Yeah, no, you know, like, your mom in the Tech Lady Mafia is definitely, like, in the Shiro pantheon, you know, of, like, (laughs) you can, you can do whatever you want, so I, like, I love hearing that anecdote about her, that's really rad. She's totally in my hero pantheon, I, I love my parents, I'm not embarrassed to say that at all. (laughs) That's cool, I like, um, I like that a lot. Um, Karen, you're really rad, like, you're gonna have, like, to talk to you. It's exciting to like watch you like make things and do things and be so graceful while navigating all of your world. So it's just like, it's exciting to to watch you do all that stuff. So we're rooting for you. And you're a total inspiration. When I just was starting to figure out what I wanted to do in media, I think I saw your um, website, The Weight We Carry. Yeah. That is, that was so inspiring to me. That was such an incredible storytelling and and valuing of humans. I was just like, oh man, this is insane. I sent it to so many people. <laughs> yeah, veterans are like a population that's very near and dear to my heart because I just yeah, I worked for this not I worked for this like veterans nonprofit and I'm like, I'm not a US citizen. I, I only know like one person in the army. And I was like, if people yeah. just knew, if you could explain it to them, they would be as like fucking outraged as I am. And yeah. that's always, like, my stance on a lot of these things. I'm like, if you can make me care, because I'm, like, an asshole, if you can make me care, <laughs> then, like, anybody can care, <laughs> honestly. So um, that's so cool that you saw that website. I think I heard some line from Gandhi that I'm totally misquoting, but he said, like, oh, I'm a good leader because, you know, I, I kind of can see, like, the dark side inside me. So I think you're on the right path with that sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> tall, tall Gandhi quote order. Yeah, and also like totally mangled. Don't Google that. <laughs> um, don't don't worry. It's like I promised myself that the Ben Kingsley Gandhi was the last Gandhi thing I would ever consume. So we are <laughs> so we're on a good track there. <laughs> hey, I hope that you have a great day, and thank you so it's much it. for talking to me. Really appreciate it. Oh, you can find us so many places on the internet, like almost one million, on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. 
You can download this podcast anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts or um, on iTunes, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can tweet at us at callyrgf or email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, look up the link, or on Instagram at callyrgf. You might be noticing a pattern. Um, You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail. That's at 714-681-2943. Again, 714-681-CYGF. This podcast is produced by Gina Delbach.